It's good to be back with you. Uh, Cookie and I had the opportunity to go to the Southern Baptist Convention in Nashville last week. Uh, last Sunday morning, we worshiped with our oldest daughter, Laura Beth, and her husband, Jay, and one child because the other two were on a mission trip to Salt Lake City. So we worshiped with them at the Forest Hills Baptist Church uh, in Nashville. And it was a good gathering. Got to see a lot of people I've known for a long time. And despite what the, uh, the press, the secular press might have to say uh, about the convention, uh, I think everything went well. Uh, there are some uh, definite issues that uh, have to be addressed and dealt with and investigated, and they will be done. Uh, but other than that, it was, uh, it was a wonderful meeting. The Word of God was proclaimed. Uh, the the um, uh, confidence that we have in God and, uh, and the blessings that we have in God were, were, were affirmed, uh, especially on Southern Baptist life. And so uh, I think that um, through all the, the, the politicking that went on, I think the right decisions were made. In my opinion, uh, the worst part of it and the longest part of the day was hearing multiple, multiple resolutions and everybody's chance to make amendments to them and all of those. Begin with, those resolutions aren't binding. Why do we spend all day on these resolutions that aren't binding? I think one of the only reasons for it is you give people a chance to stand in the spotlight and be able to make an objection uh, correction in something, add the wording in something, change the wording in something, and say, I spoke at the Southern Baptist Convention. That's the only thing I could see that some people wanted to have the opportunity to do, and it added to the day. Tuesday was one of the longest days I've ever had at the convention. We started out with a, a Lifeway hosted us for, some of us, for a breakfast at 7 o'clock, and it was after 7 o'clock before we left that afternoon, that evening, uh, after having two votes for the president of the convention. I think Ed Litton uh, was the man for that job, and I think he would do a great job leading us. Uh, the newspaper called him moderate. That's not true. Uh, he is conservative, uh, and uh, we are not drifting towards liberalism, as some would say. Uh, there is a drift towards fundamentalism, and that's something that we need to watch. Basically, fundamentalism can be described as orthodox in the faith, but lacking compassion. And so we are, we are theologically conservative as Southern Baptists, and we have good, solid leadership uh, that's leading us in that direction. So I look forward to seeing great things take place. And I'll talk a little bit later on in the message about, to me, uh, the most touching and inspirational part of that was on, um, was on, Tuesday, was on Monday night. But welcome today to Father's Day. We've uh, had a video, and I think Kent referred to fathers in his, uh, in his uh, prayer. It says Father's Day, and we recognize you, our earthly fathers, as we praise our perfect heavenly Father in heaven. And this is also a significant day, at least as I remember it, because I asked Rick, and then I asked part of the choir. I said, now, I want to make sure of this. Today is the one-year anniversary of the reopening of Spring Valley Baptist Church, Right? And they all sat there like, huh? That is true. My memory's correct, right? This is the first. We opened on Father's Day. Reopened on Father's Day last year after being shut down for, what, 12, 13 weeks. So what's happened in that period of time? Well, we've learned things like, like Zoom. Uh, uh, we've become accustomed to face masks, uh, to hand sanitizers, to social distancing, live streaming. Some of those things will remain. We will remain live streaming. Uh, with our service on Sunday morning. Some uh, life groups will continue to offer Zoom because some people are not yet comfortable about coming back. So we have looked at the life of the church 
And, and I think it's so important when we come to this uh, series of study and also our, our, the message that goes along with that here uh, out, of, out of the book of Revelation in the church that God desires. And that is, what, what have we learned about our church? What can we observe now after a year of being reopened? Well, many people have come back on a regular basis. That is almost a weekly basis. Some have come back on what I call their regular basis, and that's maybe once or twice a month, or maybe once every six weeks, whatever that is. Some have chosen not yet to come back, and they, that's, that's, that's their decision. I would never want to force to push anybody into making that decision if they were not ready for that. But we do still offer uh, um, all kind of hand, hand sanitizers. Uh, once we vacate this building on Sunday morning, the custodians come in and they start to spray cleaning. And I will venture to say this is the cleanest place you will go in a week's time. Except maybe at your own home, you do a better job of doing that. Um, as Allison has said, this coming week, this is vacation Bible school. We didn't get to have it last year. We had virtual Bible school. Some people connected with us on that with vacation Bible school virtually. And they've come to be a part of the life of our church for that. Uh, we have lost some people, the members, uh, due to what uh, experts told us would happen during this time. And that is that during the shutdown, during the pandemic, uh, that major life changes would be made. Major decisions would be made. And we saw that. Some people decided they'd been driving too far. They had a chance to look at other churches online. They decided to go somewhere closer. For some people, their job carried them far away and they had to move. For others, they retired and they moved away. And so we lost some people for those reasons. Uh, we've also had families who have come to find us here at Spring Valley to visit with us, to join with us. Uh, we've seen people make professions of faith. We've baptized people during this time. Uh, we've had babies born. We had a rosebud on the table indicating another one was born in the life of our church recently. Uh, we had baby, and we've had parent-child dedication services. Uh, we have had weddings. We have, of course, had funerals. People have died. Uh, we didn't have anybody who has died from the COVID, but we know had no, many of you have. Some of you lost both parents to COVID during the shutdown during that time. And we've had others in the community who have died due to COVID. So we know that we've had those things taking place. But we're learning to adjust to a new normal, and we will continue to do that. We ask that every basically every week when we meet as staff. Well, what is the new normal for this? What's this going to look like? You know, how will we do that? We'll open it in the fall for everything. What's that new normal going to look like? What will our schedule be? What will we offer and what are we going to do? Well, we're reminded that we are the church, not the building, but the church. We're not necessarily a place that we come to, but we are a people of God who are on mission for him in this world and in this culture. And we will continue to do that. Seeking to be what the theme of your life group lessons is, and that is to be the church that God desires. And we've done that by looking at seven churches in the book of Revelation. These were real live churches at the time that Jesus had something to say to them in the letter that he wrote to them, that he sent to them. And there were powerful words for each one of these churches. A couple of them didn't have any condemnation for them. But he always had something good to say, something to challenge them about that they needed to do to change in the life of the church. Today we're going to look at the church in Pergamon and see that I've called it a church in a bad neighborhood. The lesson emphasis, I think, is on uncompromising with the truth. And we'll see how they did that. But there were some other issues as well. So if you look with me in the scripture... Uh, uh, whether you carry a Bible or find the Bible uh, uh, on your app or whatever or scripture on the screen uh, to the church in Pergamon Acts 2 beginning in verse 12 
to the angel of the church in Pergamon, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it known only to him who receives it. Interesting words that Jesus chose to share with the church at Pergamon. So why would I call it a a, a church in a bad neighborhood? So what comes to your mind when you hear that? Maybe you might think about a church in a poor section of town with with a high crime rate. That would certainly be a bad neighborhood. Or maybe you think about a church in an area where a tremendous amount of of cultural change has taken place. And the church is having difficulty reaching the people who have diverse culture who have moved into that area. Maybe you think about a church that's a downtown church that's been hit hard by urban flight. People are leaving downtown and they're coming out into the suburbs. Or perhaps it's a church which finds offensive places of business opening a few yards from their doors. Fortunately, we don't have that to happen. Now, when you think about our life here at Spring Valley Baptist Church, you talk about a church in a bad neighborhood, you might think, well, that really doesn't describe us. We've got Wildwood next to us. We've got some of the biggest houses out here and all that, you know, and it's a nice neighborhood, relative low crime and all of that. So it's a pretty good neighborhood. So what could be in our church like the church in Pergamon? Well, the church in Pergamon, uh, was a thriving, growing city. And, and it was known for its great wealth and culture, but yet it was a bad neighborhood for the church. Why? Well, Jesus said because Satan has his throne there, and later on he says, where Satan lives. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they were, he was in the church, but he was there in Pergamon, in the city. A tough place to be a church in a city like that, that was known to be the place of Satan. So how did it get that name? Well, the the city of Pergamon was historically the greatest city of Asia Minor. She was a capital city, which meant that she had been loyal to Rome, and Rome rewarded her by being the capital of Asia. Pergamon also had one of the most famous libraries in the world, containing over 200 volumes. Now, 200,000 volumes. 200,000 books at that time. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed when I read that because I thought, how in the world could there be 200,000 books at that time? You know, I didn't think there would be that many books written during that time. 200,000 books, and they all had to be written how? Hand. Gutenberg hadn't been around yet to invent his press, okay? Um, she also was the famous center of religious worship. Religious worship. 
Now, it's located in Pergamum. It was the great altar of Zeus and the temple of Athena. And Zeus was called the Savior and Athena the goddess of victory. And they were thought to give Pergamum victory over the enemies. And also then we had Dionysus, the god of kings, depicted as the god bull who was also worshipped there. And then there was the god serpent or the healing god Asclepicus, Asclepicus. And he had a large health center in Pergamum which drew thousands of people to the healing power supposedly in that temple. And then there was the worship of the emperor. Pergamon was the official center for emperor worship in Asia Minor. Now, all of those things made it a bad neighborhood. However the church got started, we're not sure about that. It was a church in a bad neighborhood. Christians in that church were called to live in a bad neighborhood with all that sinful influence that Jesus called Satan's throne, Satan's seat, and the place where Satan lives. So what does he have to say to them in this letter about uncompromising truth while living in a bad neighborhood? Well, let's look at the pattern that I've led in in the other churches that we've taken a look at. First of all, we look at the Lord of the church. And we see in verse 12 that Jesus is described as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, what does that reveal about Jesus that is directly related to the situation of the Christians in Pergamon? Well, swords were familiar to everyone who lived in the Roman capital city, such as Pergamon. At the installation of a Roman governor, he was granted what was known as the right of the sword. And that meant that he had the power to judge cases and execute justice and punishment. And that authority was given to him by the Roman government. So what does it mean that Jesus was seen as the one who had the sharp two-edged sword? It meant that Jesus is the one sent from God who has the absolute authority from heaven to pass judgment and also to expedite punishment where it was due. So when the Christians in Pergamum saw the power of the sword given to the Roman emperor, they were reminded that they were not only to be subjects under the Roman government, but that they also knelt before a higher source of power, and that is Jesus Christ, who not only had the power of death in his sword, but also was the one who had the power of life and death. And so Jesus is seen as the Lord of the church in that fashion. So now, secondly, let's learn from the life of the church. What do we see? Basically in verses 13 through 15. Jesus knows everything. He's the omniscient God. He knows everything. And he knew the life of this church, just like he did for all these seven churches and every church around today. He knows what goes on in the life of that church. He had a clear vision as to what was going on in the life of the church in Pergamum. So there are three things that I see that he addresses. First of all, there was conflict. In verse 13, he points out again, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's seat or throne is, and where Satan lives. That's a tough place for a church, isn't it? Tough place for a church. And when we drove around Nashville, and that's the first I've been to Nashville twice before, but I never had spent time there for about a week there. And when Jay and Laura Beth live is, is out, uh, but yet at the same time, 
uh, and we could get on a, one road and go straight downtown, and we were there we were in about 11 minutes at the convention center. Fantastic for that. Some of the most beautiful homes, beautiful landscaping, and beautiful churches were there. They were all in good neighborhoods. So it was wonderful to see that. Wonderful property. My goodness, they had space. The church there at Forest Hills has got all kinds of space, and they're using it all to the glory of God. But there are churches, I, I know, that had to be somewhere in Nashville that were not in a good neighborhood for various reasons. Just like there are some churches today that are not in good neighborhoods. And the church in Pergamon was not in a good neighborhood because it was located where Satan had his headquarters. In fact, one scholar said that it was called Hell's Headquarters. This church was located where Satan had great power and authority. One place in particular as was a pagan temple of Ascapolis, whose emblem was the serpent. Now get this. He was known as the healer. He had a temple that he kept full of snakes. That's got my attention right away. People would come to that temple, lie on the floor, spend the night there, and allow all these non-poisonous snakes to crawl over their bodies because they believed that there was healing power in those snakes crawling across their bodies. In my mind, their bodies wasn't a thing that was sick. They needed something up here evaluated, right? Have you ever wondered why the symbol of the American Medical Association is a staff with two snakes entwined around it? I've always wondered that. It's because of this temple of healing. This temple of healing was there. And it is carried on today. That's the symbol for American Medical Association. If my doctor ever brings out a snake, I'm out of there. <laughs> it was also a place of emperor worship. I think we hinted at that. But like the city of Smyrna, the, the city of Pergamon was forced to pay tribute to Caesar and to say Caesar is Lord. Satan was having his way in the city of Pergamum. It was an overwhelmingly pagan city which made it even more difficult to live the Christian life. And that's a parallel to our life today. It's a fairly decent community here in, in which we live. Northeast Columbia is a fairly nice community. You know, we have some crime. I keep up with that every day, but yet it's a pretty good place to live. And we're not persecuted. But there is that ever-increasing pagan influence in our society which makes it more and more difficult to live the Christian life. There's the conflict that goes on in our life between the good and evil and between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. But secondly, there was also great conviction there. This is the uncompromising truth they talk about. Jesus knew that they were holding fast to his name. His conviction, their conviction was the evidence to him. He talked about that in verse 13. You know, he says, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. See, they did not deny the faith. 
They maintain a close personal relationship with Christ in spite of the constant threats and persecution. They were even loyal to the point of death that Antipas had died because he was a strong believer in Christ. There was great conviction as well. And then thirdly, there was confusion though. And we find that in verses 14 through 15. Jesus says, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Those Nicolaitans keep rising again, don't they, in that church. So what was going on? What do we see in Balak? Well, you go back to Numbers 23 and 24. And you'll find that Balaam led the children of Israel to dishonor God by accepting standards of compromise and tolerance. Whenever the church is willing to accept compromise and tolerance, we begin to decline. We live in spiritual confusion and God cannot bless a church that is tolerant of sin and compromises the truth. With Balaam, what he did was, the scripture says, that he he enticed them, however, to eat food, sacrifice to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Then verse 14 talks a little bit later on about the fact that the result was that it was acts of immorality. And then we go to the Nicolaitans in verse 15. And again we say, Not quite sure about them, exactly what they did. But I think most of it was related back to being a Gnostic organization that they said it does not matter. There's a separation between the body and your soul. And what you do in the body does not influence your soul whatsoever. So they were saying on the one hand, you can profess your faith in Christ. You can hold strong to the orthodoxy of the faith. But you can do anything in your body that you want to do. You can commit sexual immorality. You can get drunk if you want to do that. It does not affect your spiritual life. So a lot of people would say, hey, that sounds good to me. That sounds good to me. That that makes life easy, doesn't it? They exercised the freedom in Christ to such an extent that there was confusion. The church was weakening its power of resistance By tolerating sin. Today we live as a church. In not only a diverse culture. Where we need to be tolerant to people of other nationalities. And of other faiths. But we have to remain strong in our Christian commitment. And not compromise our faith. There were some in the church in Pergamum who held strong to that conviction. But Jesus was talking to the church as a whole, and he said, be careful that you do not allow the spirit of compromise to come in and to destroy you as a church. You have to look at some of the battles that are going on in churches today. The battle over homosexuality. Same-sex marriage, all those kinds of things that the church is dealing with today. And and, and there are churches that have no problem ordaining those. When the Word of God speaks clearly against that, that it's it's blasphemy to God. That it's a, a, 
a, a horrific sin in the sight of God. You see, we cannot be tolerant to that extent. We have to be tolerant within the confines of our spiritual convictions and the orthodoxy of the faith. I like what Billy Graham said one time. He said, most of us follow our conscience as we follow a wheelbarrow. We push it in front of us in the direction we want it to go. Now you think about that. That's kind of how we let our conscience or our spirit be our guide, is we kind of push it to where we want it to go. We're called to be a light on the hill. We're called to do good works in the name of God so that people will see our good works and not glorify us, but glorify God the Father. Why are we called to be light? Because there are people who are held in the captivity of, of the dominion of darkness, which is held by Satan. Their eyes have been blinded to the truth, and they're in spiritual blindness and darkness. And we have to be light that shines upon them to show them the truth and to lead them to the truth. So listen to the lessons then that Jesus ends up by giving to the church. Verses 16 and 17. He says, repent therefore. There's a call to repent. Come back. Likewise, come back. Repent. I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, there are three things that are of interest. Number one, he calls them back to repent. Where they had become uh, too tolerant, where they had begun to compromise the gospel, he called them to come back and to repent of that. To repent of that and come back in the right relationship with him. Don't compromise the truth. You can be tolerant of others' viewpoints, but don't succumb to those. Don't compromise the truth of the kingdom of God and the gospel message whatsoever. And then he talks about there would be rewards. And he talks about that they would have the hidden manna. And that's a reference, of course, to the manna that God gave to the Israelites day by day by day by day as they wandered in the wilderness and he fed them. And I see in that that that's the provision that God will give to us if we are faithful. He will provide for us everything that we need. Physical strength, spiritual strength, spiritual guidance, all that we need as well as everything that sustains our spiritual life. And then he talks about a white stone with a new name. And that's an interesting thing. A lot of different thoughts come about that. First of all, precious white stones were mined at Pergamum, and they were associated with, with four things. One who was found not guilty by trial, and that was a heck of a way to do that, wasn't it? They would put a certain amount of white, a one, a black stones and one white stone and a little thing like you shake dice to play a Yahtzee or whatever, and they rolled that out, and if the, if, the, if, the, if the black one came out, you were guilty. If the white one came out, you were not guilty. A lot of justice in that, wasn't it? Secondly, it was referred to someone who was given a white stone to symbolize that he or she was free from slavery. Thirdly, it was called, it was given to the one who was victorious in a race. And then it was also, fourthly, to one who returns as a victorious warrior. I read this week another interesting thought on that. And, 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 and 
Think about this, if you're married couples. Um, the writer said, you know, uh, most married couples have little names that they call each other that nobody else knows. And you share those little names with each other in the context of marriage, in the privacy of your home, and nobody else knows those names. You have those names? Some of you? Some of them you don't want us to know what that name is. Right? But here's the reference what Jesus is saying. That it, I think it's the personal care that he gives to us. He gives us a white stone. And nobody knows that the name is on it except us. You know, he could give us a white stone that's got truthful written on it. He could give us a white stone that says courageous written on it. He could give us a white stone that's got something positive to say to us about his personal knowledge of us and his personal care for us. That's the rewards that he talks about. But they don't come until you repent from compromising the spiritual truth. Of all the things that were done at the Southern Baptist Convention, the most moving was on Monday night when the International Mission Board commissioned a host of families and individuals who were going to countries all over the world. Some of the places were so notorious for not being tolerant to Christians that even we who were there as Southern Baptists could not see them but they were introduced to us as they stood behind a screen and we could only see the silhouette of who they were. If you use open windows and in the middle of that open windows devotion book, there's our Southern Baptist publication, and you pray for the missionaries, you will see that some are listed only by initials because they cannot be found out as to what country they are in because their life would be in danger. There were parents of some of these young missionaries going to these countries, unnamed and unknown, parents there that we saw happy in the Lord that their child was coming, adult child was coming to be faithful to what God wanted them to do, but weeping and crying at the same time as to where those children were going and where those grandchildren were going. You know, and I thought, if we, even as the messengers there, if they had to protect them so that nobody could see them and, and get ahead of them in the countries where they were going, and the countries weren't spelled out, it's just given a general geographic reference. Every time that screen came up and there was only the silhouette of the couple or an individual behind that screen, there was a, just a little tingling chill that went down my spine. And I was thinking about this message in this church about uncompromising the truth. And how easy it is for us to compromise today. And how these people are willing to go into these dangerous situations, these bad neighborhoods where it's difficult, if not dangerous, to live the Christian life. And they were willing to go and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It reminded me also of a story that I read in Commission Magazine a few years ago of several BCM groups who had worked with a church in Leningrad in Soviet Russia. And the building at one time had been an old church and it was 
came in control of the government. That was a small industrial plant, and that was being turned back into a church. They worked on that all summer long, and they saw the life of the Christians in that Soviet city. And one of the young men on one of the BCM teams said, it surprises me to see a remnant of the church after all they've gone through. I'm awed by their faith. It seems unshakable to me. Folks at Spring Valley, that's what we need today to advance the kingdom of God. We must be a church that will not compromise the truth and that we will have a faith that is unshakable. And when those two elements are together in the life of our church, we will make a difference in this culture for the glory of God and for the growth of his kingdom. Join me as we pray. Father God, we thank you for these letters that our Lord Jesus wrote to these churches so many years ago and how real and relevant they are for us today. As we hear this challenge to the church at Pergamum about uncompromising with the truth, may we do so. This church was in a bad neighborhood where Satan lived, and we can see evidences of Satan and the power of evil all around us in this neighborhood. It's a neighborhood of affluence, but yet it has the power of Satan alive within it, the power of evil that's there, so many sins that could bring people down. Father, help us to have an unshakable holding to the true conviction of the gospel so that we will be victorious over the sins of this culture and over the power of Satan, all for your glory, through the name of Christ our Lord, in his name that we pray. Amen.